This is exactly right. Listen, we're all SVU fans. We love a family drama. We love a mystery to solve. And you got to get hooked into a story with the details. You need the visuals. You need the storylines with the twists and the turns. And that is what June's Journey has and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young girl on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murderer. Dun, 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 dun. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. The game is filled with all these beautiful detailed scenes from the 20s, like lavish estates and gardens. And of course, little hidden clues are everywhere. There's twists, turns, catchy tunes. It all takes you deep deeper into this storyline. And if you play well enough, you can make it into the detective club. And there you can chat with other players and even compete with or against them, which is pretty exciting. And you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. And can you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. Okay, love that. And guess what? It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! Hello and welcome to That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. I'm Kara Clank. And I'm Lisa Traeger. And we talk SVU, true crime. We have celebrity guests. And up top, we catch up. We chit-chat. We have a good time. So on our shared Google Doc, it says Anonymous Hyena. Is that, oh, yeah. Is, Who the fuck is Anonymous Hyena? Anonymous mine, says, anon- mine says Anonymous Dumbo Octopus. What the fuck? Casey, who is that? Who's in our agenda? That that's just like that's like me. Like, if, but it if, says Casey. Like, My viewers say me? Casey and anonymous Dumbo octopus. I think one of you is octopus and one of you is hyena. <laughs> oh, Lisa, you're the anonymous Dumbo octopus. Wow, oh my God. you've changed. You've changed a lot, Lisa. <laughs> That's so weird. Yeah, because it doesn't want to tell me you. I get it. Le- but Casey's the owner, so we're allowed to see him. But they don't They don't want to betray your privacy as an anonymous Dumbo octopus. And um, you're a hyena. That's cute. <laughs> Is that new um, merch? <laughs> Speaking of, I do think I'm going to take Rosie to Lion King in New York. Great. This is thrilling we'll see news. what happens. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited. I was telling her about it today. I was like, everybody dresses up in a costume and there's dancing and singing. And she goes, can I wear a costume? I was like, no, but maybe I'll buy you a souvenir. 
So we'll see. Wait, did you have to give her a speech on like, you can't talk and all that or? Well, I said, you can sit on my lap and I'll, I, I'll get to the talking part a little bit closer because I don't want that to turn her off from going. And when we've gone to movies together, she's quiet. She'll say like a couple things to me, but like, she'll be pretty quiet. And she's um, a Bob Baker marionette regular. Yes, that's true. That's true too. So <laughs> she's she's had her fair share of live performances. <laughs> wow. So she's doing Lion King. I'll be in New York too. We'll see I what know. happens. We'll see what <laughs> you kind of pop in the Lion King with us. <laughs> no, but I would definitely do. I'm trying to think what like uh, I would want to do with Rosie. Just run around Central Park. I know. I think that's like going to happen one day. We were talking about maybe and maybe going to a gallery because we're going with our art friend. So that sounds all like stuff you would be down for. A hundred percent. Wait, I have a new uh, thing in my life. So I thought Kashi cereal sucks, you know? Uh Uh-huh. But I bought Kashi maple waffle crisp. (gasps) Delicious. Love it. It's delicious. It tastes like the cinnamon French toast that used to... Do you remember the the cereals that look like... It tastes just like that. Kashi is bringing it. I thought Kashi is a loser. Like cat food. Well, like, pap- I like- think when Kashi started, they were just like fiber. It was just like fiber food. And now I think Kashi's like, let's get into the flavor game, you know? And they're like, let's, <laughs> we got to diversify. Not enough hippies are buying our, no, no offense if you eat like regular Kashi, but I feel like it's not exactly no, the most delicious thing. It's like pellets. It actually looks like gerbil poops. Like I Somebody- remember- I know used to have a stand-up joke about Kashi and I totally forgot about it. But, but I'm looking at the box. One. Sorry, this is like riveting information, I know, for <laughs> all of our podcast this listeners. This is what we talk about. I'm just looking at the box. But yesterday I did watch um, on Hulu the new ID special on Jared from Subway. And we covered him on an episode. Um, We had a great writer on that episode. And we got through the horrors of it. But what's horrible about this one is they play the vo- they play the recordings. Yeah. So yeah. you it's like hear one thing him. to hear. It's one thing to hear, oh yeah, this woman went undercover and recorded him. And it's another to hear the recordings. Like, oh my God. And it fucked up her whole family. Like her kid, like it fucked up her whole life going undercover because she couldn't share with her children why she was so busy. But like she was committed to bringing him down. Um, but when she brought the tapes to the FBI, they're like, you actually committed a crime because you have to tell someone. Yes. And they're like, so we can arrest you. So now you have to be an informant. And so she had to do drops in the middle of the night and do all of this stuff like all the time. And she's like, I have all this evidence for you. Just get him. And they're like, it's not enough yet. And so like, who you know, the FBI really oh needs a lot. God. But then her daughter went into her room and read through the journals. and that fucked her up and the daughter because all she told her kids was I'm chasing a bad man I'm helping find a bad man so then the kids were constantly anxious that someone's gonna get them any stranger was a bad man and so like the daughter just became anxious depressed had all these issues like doesn't really talk to the mom really and then the son moved to Taiwan and hasn't been to the states in five years and the and he goes, you know, my what my mom did was selfless because she lost everything in the process. Oh so like she brought down this guy and did, you know, I don't know if it was months or years, I can't really put it together of how much she recorded him, but she pretended to be a pedophile into him and like they were gonna pedophile together. So like she so so that's like where she got him to, because he had a crush on her. She was like a local reporter. She was a babe. And so then 
once she, they were talking all the time. They were both interested in each other. Well, she was not for real. And then she just got him to open up and it was sick. Hearing him say those things was really fucking sick. God. uh, And then we knew, you know, he had that partner, that rate, like the fundraiser. We talk about his two stepdaughters who he put cameras in their room. And then they found out that the mom, there was all this footage, the mom did this all. Like their own mother was the leader helping him do it. It wasn't like she was a backseat abused. Like she was like a pedophile too. It was But you know who you have to watch out for? Drag queens. A hundred percent. That's who it is. It's drag queens. I'm sure all of them were drag queens. Jared from Subway, et cetera. Well, that's what's wild. The whole doc, it was like, oh, we were shocked. We were shocked. He was respected. And it's like, how many more times do you have to be shocked when it's a pastor or a quote unquote good guy? Like how many more good guys have to do it? It's so weird and annoying. It's also kind of wild that like this didn't bring Subway down. (laughs) Like Subway's just still kicking it. The biggest franchise business in the world, I think. Like just- Well, I'm sure they dipped for a bit, but like- they change, you know, when was the dollar footlongs? Was that pre or post Jared? I don't, I don't know. $5 footlong, I believe, was like the king of the, that was like the peak with Jared. That was oh, his was. thing, wasn't it? $5 footlong? I don't know. Subway historians, please write to us and tell us. But I, no, I, his was not because he wasn't eating footlongs. Oh, he was eating six inches? I think so, for like diet purposes. He was eating a turkey sub for lunch and a veggie delight for dinner. Oh, I mean, when I was in college, I was so broke. I, we would get a foot long. We would do half for lunch, half for dinner. And that was like my food for the day for some po- times of college. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I was craving it as I was watching it. I was like, is it weird <laughs> if I get Subway now? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. I'm just telling you, I understand how they survived. It's like... yeah. I don't always want it, but a few times a year, I'm like, you know what? I just really need a tuna sandwich. I know it's not real tuna. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Bub and Grandma's, their tuna sandwich is great. Okay, if I hear about Bub and Grandma's one more time. Just saying, I know you wanted to go there, and that's one of the things I had, and I enjoyed it. No, I want to go there. I tried going once, and they were done. They were sold out of bread or something. I don't know. Like, (laughs) something happened where I waited in line forever, and then they were like, no sandwiches. And I was like, okay. You see there's a line. Um, So I will try again. But it looks cool in there. I would like to try a hip sandwich spot. Yeah, the tables. It's like pretty marble table. Like, it's nice. Um, Anyway, what else is going on? I haven't talked to you in a couple of days. Have you been? Well, you saw Cocaine Bear. I did see Cocaine Bear. And you loved um, it. My review is that I really enjoyed it. I had a good time. It is like gross. Like there's a lot of like gross, like sort of blood splatter violence, but it's all kind of also campy and jokey. So I just closed my eyes a bunch of times and Jared would just tell me when I, it was okay to look. And But the but I, the rest of it was like funny and I had a, a good time. The actors are all really funny. Like everybody's camping it up. Maybe except for like Carrie Russell, who's kind of playing like action, like the the main star, but you know. So it's good, star good studded. Oh my gosh. Jesse Tyler Ferguson, uh, Margot Martindale, Carrie Russell, Matthew Reese. So all three, Carrie Russell, Matthew Reese, and Margot Martindale, that's an Americans reunion. All three of them. They're not really all three in a scene together, but they're all from the Americans. Who else is freaking in it? Well, the bear. The bear. Just presented at the Oscars. Yeah. Oh, do we talk about the Oscars? I thought the fashion was awesome. Oh, yeah. Who did you like? 
Everyone. I thought everyone looked so good and unique and different. And like, I just really liked everyone's looks. Yeah. I don't know what it was. Like, I, w- I, l- I usually scroll down. I'm like, I mean, usually I don't care about men's fashion and that's that stays um, for this year included. But except for Lenny Kravitz and his velvet jumpsuit. Yeah, but Cara Delevingne. People look good. The red, the red like blazer that the guy from Everything Everywhere was wearing. I like when guys do something different to like stand out from like the black tuxes. You know, I liked what he was wearing. Yeah, I just thought everyone kind of brought it in a cool way. Yeah, and it was kind of a cool like it was like it was definitely like the year of like people that just like like coming back around to get their Oscars. Do you know what I mean? Like Jamie Lee Curtis had never gotten one. Well, people uh, are upset. I think everyone wanted Angela this year. It was yes. it was definitely an upset. Yes. I love Jamie Lee Curtis. She's been in the business forever, but I think that was definitely one of the upsets. Angela Bassett the- did the thing. How could we not have given her the thing for doing the thing? Yeah, um, she dressed her whole family in purple because she was going to win. Like oh. they were, they were color coordinated. Yeah, it's why. But I haven't seen that movie yet, so I have Me to neither. see it. No, everything, everywhere. I haven't seen yet. Oh, you haven't seen that? Oh, yeah, I haven't seen Wakanda, um, forever. But I, but like the speech that Ki Hui Kwan gave was like making me cry. He was so excited, and he's just like a person that thought Hollywood had totally just spit him out. And same, I mean, so did Brendan Fraser for that matter. And then they just get like brought back into the fold. It's like, I kind of like that directors, like you were saying Tarantino the other day and like clearly the Daniels like to bring people back in that are talented into the fold of Hollywood. Well, and and it was cute. So then I saw that Brendan Fraser and the dude from everywhere, everything, they were an Encino man together. Oh, really? Yeah. So that was like extra fucking cute. But yeah, his credits legit go from like 1982, then one thing in 02 or 07, and then this, then everything everywhere. And his wife, and he was like, you told me to never give up, and I didn't. And I was like, just so sweet. I was like tearing. I know Um, it's so hard because I don't think anyone should give up on their dreams. And like, you know, every life is long and like keep at it. But then it's also like, we just know people that should quit comedy. <laughs> yeah. That just don't have it. So it's like so hard when it's like, you know, just go go support your family. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't I mean, know what it is. It's also like you you could also say to yourself, maybe I just had my moment. It's not like it, your dreams never came true. They did. You were in all these big movies in the 90s, but like a sustaining career. And like, I hope he keeps working. He was awesome in that movie. Brendan Fraser, I wonder if that was, um, I thought Colin Farrell was going to win. I, I haven't seen that either, but... Um, I don't know. The whale is the whale is very controversial. Brendan Fraser came out about being sexually like assaulted at the Golden Globes. And that's why he was blacklisted. He was like right. um, like a Marissa Tomei, Ashley Judd type moment. Oh yeah. Yeah. But I I just I just meant like the the whale is controversial. So I didn't know like if people were gonna be like up in arms. You know, like have you been have you been seeing stuff about people hating the whale? Yeah, I think people just don't like fat suits. Yeah. People don't like it, but the Oscars love it. Yeah, the <laughs> makeup one for the fat suit. I was like, I was like, I, I, whatever. I'm sure the effects are cool. I haven't seen the whale. The but in Wakanda, they're like giving people tusks. Like they're like, you know what I mean? Like I couldn't believe that. Like that one best makeup over over that. I don't know. I was like, that seemed weird. But you're right. The Oscars do love fat suits. Yeah, they love... Well, I'm glad that Elvis lost. Fuck that kid. He needs a fucking (laughs) kick in the junk and to sit down (laughs) 
and work a little harder. He, I'm, what someone wrote, like, he had a little ego death and that is good for him. Yeah. Well, because, and what I was hearing was that he was all over Hollywood for weeks, like at every party, at every lunch, really shaking the hands and kissing the babies, trying to get that Oscar. Yeah, it's ridiculous. What are you, 24? Sit down. Sit down. (laughs) You're not Jennifer Lawrence. You're not likable. People think he's hot, but like, I just don't find him charming, interesting in any way. I never heard of him. I've also seen him work. Yeah. I never, I haven't seen any of his stuff, so I don't, I don't well, know. Well, someone was telling me, they're like, he's incredible. It's the beginning of an amazing, you have to see it. And I go, well, if he's incredible, I'll, I'll catch his next film. I really don't like <laughs> bi, bio, not biopsies. What are they called? Biopics. Biopics. I'm yeah. not into them. I don't really care. No. Well, that's what my husband started watching Elvis and he said it just really had like the same formula of every biopic, which is like, you know, young talent. And then the manager steals everything and then drugs. It's like, it's a lot. It's like the same fucking thing. So he I'm was trying, he, he stopped watching it because he said it was boring. I'm trying to think of one that I like. Like if there's, if I've even seen one, like I really, I like the movie, like anything about Queen Elizabeth, I guess the first. Oh yeah. Like Kate Blanchett and Elizabeth I liked in the nineties. But I don't know if that's a biopic. Those, I don't know if those are biopics. Yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of a biopic that I like. What's a good biopic? I don't know. I The last one I saw was probably uh, the Freddie Mercury one, The Bohemian Rhapsody, but I can't think of another one before that. Um, and then we have to get started, but also a big drama after the Oscars, though, was Law Roach, um, celeb stylist, image maker, judge on Legendary. But he, him and Zendaya, Zen, I always forget if it's Zendaya or Zendaya. It's truly, I think it's Zendaya. I, I think you had it right. Okay, it's it's honestly like um, it's like I know it and then I don't. It's like Kamala, Kamala, Kamala. Like it, Kamala. Really, it really just puts me in a, into a panic where even if I know <laughs> it, like I won't say it. Like it really yeah. stresses me out. But he's been working with Zendaya forever. Like he's you know, and she's one of the best dressed people. Yes, and he he was the one that did the Celine Dion moment. Um, when she came back into fashion and Hathaway and everything, but he made an announcement that he retired and he's over it and he does not give a shit about Hall. He, he's he been disrespected one too many times and he's done. So he wow. posted a big thing on Instagram that said retired. So I went on like, not a deep dive, but a little dive on videos. And he just basically is like, I'm from the hood. Like, I'm a hustler. I don't need you guys. I don't care about Hollywood. I don't fucking, I'm not playing these games. I can make money anywhere and I'm not doing this. And then it was... He had a falling out with Tiffany Haddish. And I bet this happens to him a lot as like a black professional where like he's too difficult or PR tells their clients, mm-hmm. no, he's too much. He's annoying. Don't do that. And like he was really hurt that she listened to her team instead of like having his back. But he's just like an incredibly talented visionary. And I hope this is just a moment in time and he continues to work because he he did the... Hunter Schaefer, that white little feather that covered her titties. Oh, that yeah, lo- that looked th- awesome. That was his look. Um, yeah. He dressed Megan the Stallion. Like, he's incredible. And what I learned about him in Zendaya is that what he would do was he would dress her in outfits that other celebrities already wore. So then she would end up in Who Wore It Betters, and then she would always win. And so <laughs> that's how she became kind of this fashion icon because he was just wow, like using stuff that people used because he knew he could do it better. And then, I mean, 
what he's done is incredible. But even like the designers he wanted to use, it's just always been a struggle for like, yeah, being black in Hollywood is a struggle. Yeah. Yeah. Or anywhere. And so he retired. And I wonder if this is real or not, but all the celebs in his comments are like, please no, you know, they're like sad. But then I watched this clip of him being like, I'm done being disrespected. I don't care about any of you. I don't need to be in this business. Like, I don't owe, I don't have any favors. I don't owe anyone anything. He's like, I don't care if you do PR. I don't care who you, where you work, what brand you work at. I don't care about any of you. But I wonder what he'll do going forward. I hope he does something creative. Well, so what I heard, um, because, you know, I've been looking for stylists and stuff for some future shit. He's 10,000 a look. Jesus. Because I was quoted by someone and it was 3,900. Usually it's supposed to be, I talked to a PR person like, I thought, but that's another thing. Like when you work with a certain PR person, you give a lower rate so then you can be on the carpet and he refuses to do that because he's good. And he goes, no, I'm 10 grand or bust. Wow, 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 wow. Yeah, are you looking at all his looks right now? Yeah. Yeah, and how do you feel? Like he's good. No, he's great. I mean, Zendaya always looks impeccable. I love that thing Hunter Schaefer was wearing, like for sure. This is a very talented person and legendary. I mean, is legendary over? I don't know. I have. I never Maybe watched. He'll keep it. judging. I, well, I, I watched Trixie and Katya watch Pose, mm-hmm. and it makes me really want to watch Pose, which you've I been saying Pose. to watch for a long time. I loved Pose. I thought it was great. I really loved it. Um, oh, he did Ari- Ariana Grande looks. Um, like, you know, he did something cool. So the Met Gala, usually designers, like big fashion houses buy a table and then invite celebrities to wear their dresses to the table. So what he did, he encouraged this F1 driver, like this race car driver, who is his client, to buy a table And have it be all different black designers and young up-and-coming people. And it's like, no one's ever done that before. And last year, I guess he had an unprecedented, like, nine looks at the Met Gala. But the Met Gala is coming up soon. But yeah, he's he's retired. I don't know. Damn. Oh, my God. Casey's Casey's got a new flag. flag. Casey's got a new flag for when we go way, way too long. Um, I just want to say one quick thing before we get going with the episode, because we've got a banger of an up for you guys. But um, we are trying to get our date for Moon Tower. We are going to be there between the 19th and the 22nd in Austin at the Moon Tower Comedy Festival. And as soon as we know our exact date, it will be on our Instagram. That's messed up. Or messed up pod. Is that our Instagram? Um, yeah. So don't worry. We're getting, We're trying to get it. And then if you're listening today, I'm, I'm in Philly starting the 30th. Yes. The 30th to the 1st, I'm in Philly. So come on out. Not an April Fool's joke. Go see Lisa this, <laughs> yeah. that weekend. Her stand-up is so fucking funny. Um, okay, let's get going. Okay, we today are doing the episode Manhattan Transfer, season 17, episode 17 from the year of 2016. Gosh, what a time right before we thought Donald Trump would never be president. Um, Manhattan Transfer is also like a jazz quartet that my dad used to always make me listen to in the car. Like they would sing songs like, you know, downtown, or like you must take the A train. Like that's that's what I think of when I hear Manhattan Transfer. Anyway, so Manhattan Transfer is part of two episodes, seasons uh, 17, episodes 17 and 18. We're doing Manhattan Transfer today. Next week will be Unholiest Alliance. So you're getting... You get in both parts of this major arc, and this is a this is a 
I would say this is a banger of a double app. There's a lot going on. A lot. We open on a scene we've seen so many times before at SVU, a sex party. Lots of old men smoking cigars with hot, barely legal-looking babes in Forever 21 dresses sitting on their laps. Like, alcohol's flowing. Everybody's, you know, looks like they're having a good time, except a lot of the girls look bored and possibly upset. Um, We see a woman bartending who we recognize immediately as Abigail Savage from Orange is the New Black. Um, She's like the... Who's her crew? She's in Red's crew in Orange is the New Black, right? Yeah, she's part of the kitchen crew. She's got the short little pixie cut. And she was actually... She's actually been in two other episodes of SVU besides these two. And she's the masturbator in the episode Sugar, the Eric McCormick episode we did where she's like the online person named the masturbator and they go to her work and Stabler goes, I need the masturbator to come to the front. Anyway, that's her. And uh, she's got a long wig on and she's pouring drinks. And these old business dudes are like sitting around talking about rents. Like one guy's like, yeah, I wanted a two bedroom in Bushwick and I couldn't find one for less than $3,500 a month. And it's like, The other guy goes, pathetic, which is my mom's favorite adjective, by the way. She calls everything pathetic. Like, everything is pathetic. She's like, it's so pathetic. I can't even get upstairs. Or she's like, it's so pathetic what's happening in Syria. Like, she just like, pathetic is her catch-all adjective. And it's just weird to me that these men that I guess are supposed to be able to like, pay to get into these exclusive sex parties are like, bitching about a two-bedroom in Bushwick that's $3,500 a month. Doesn't that seem weird? It does, but maybe they're complaining about how the prices have changed it. Like, yeah. like it used to be cheaper or something. Who knows? And who are they buying these apartments for? Yeah, but they're talking about rent. So they're not even buying them. They're renting them. So it's like, are you rich or not? I don't know what's going on. So um, the young, sexy girls look very bored by these conversations. And we pan around and who is hanging out at this party, listening in on the convos, but our dear Dominic Sonny Carisi. And um, we cut, obviously, and he's wearing glasses. He's wearing like, you know, we know he doesn't usually wear glasses. So it's weird he's wearing glasses. And we cut to the van where Rollins, Benson, and Baby Dodds are watching the whole scene through Carisi's Google glasses. He basically has like spy glasses on. And remember what a flop Google Glass was? Just one of the biggest flops. One of the biggest tech flops of all time. I remember I went to a bar once that said like no vaping and no Google Glass. And I was like, this is amazing. (laughs) Like, I love this sign. Well, yeah, but I feel like Quibi is my favorite tech um, disaster. Quibi and CISO are such specific, close to us flops, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But CISO at least like had a couple months. Like Quibi truly within a day was like, this is a flop. We're calling it quits. (laughs) Well, and the cockiness. I don't think CISO was as cocky as Quibi. But Quibi, but CISO was stupid because they charged immediately. Like Hulu didn't charge at the beginning. These people need to give away the ship for free and then make it impossible to not pay because you want it so badly. You know what I mean? You can't make people pay off the bat. Anyway, with content like that. But anyway, uh, this is why I'm, you know, a media analyst on the side. So... Rollins is like, God, these guys are boring. Also, for those who want to know, Casey is wearing a jack-o'-lantern sweatshirt and it is February. Yeah, Casey, what what brought you to that? I noticed that earlier. (laughs) I honor Halloween year-round. I don't know what to say. Yeah. (laughs) Rosie's been making me play Halloween music for her in the car so you two can have a little trick-or-treat party together. So Rollins is like watching the footage. He's like, dude, these these dudes are boring as fuck. Is this what guys talk about when their wives are gone? And Liv's like focused more on the actual crime. She's like, these girls do not look 18. Then they spot Judge Wheeler, a judge. They spot a Bronx ADA. They spot two assemblymen and a councilman. Like this 
party is supposedly, I got all these higher up people, but I guess not higher up like, Maybe my comment before about the rent stuff was misplaced because it's not like these are finance bros. Like we've seen those sex parties before. These are like public servant guys. So they make money, but they're not like drowning in money. So I guess they got a tip about this party from a nurse who said that the girls were scared, but wouldn't name any names. So Dodds is like, let's get in there. He's like itching to bust in and lives like, we need to wait for more illegal shit to happen. So far, we're just seeing a lot of girls sitting on laps. Suddenly, the girl that is sitting on the judge's lap starts like coughing and she wants to go to the bathroom, but this creepy judge like won't let her go. And so Carisi jumps in and is like, do you need water, honey? And then the creepy judge is like, you'll get your turn. Not great language. And then the masturbator woman interjects and she's trying to like calm things down. And then another creepy guy gets in Carisi's face and calls him Jersey. It's like he has a very clear uh, New York accent, but... Then he shoves Carisi, a fight ensues, and a lot of the guys like join in and it's all because Carisi's offering a girl a glass of water just over the line. He should not have done that. So then one of the guys- Don't hydrate our bitches. (laughs) How dare you? I like it when they can barely produce saliva. (laughs) So a guy that's there pulls a gun and then it's like, "Uh uh-oh, gun. The squad moves in. Everyone, like Liv, Rollins, Dodds are all in there. They're like, drop it. But there's two guys now with guns on them. It's a black guy and a guy with a mustache. And they're they're like, we're on the job with Vice. And they're like, color of the day. And they're like, yellow. And like, there's not that many colors, right? There's got to be a better way to do this. I feel like you could possibly guess the color of the day, right? Like, there's not that many colors. I don't know. Unless they're like puce. Like, are they doing random colors? Or is it usually just like red, green, blue, brown, orange? Um, Yeah, I remember there was certain comedy places that would have different drink ticket colors every day. Sure. But I knew an alcoholic comedian, great guy, great guy, great father. Um, but he he would keep different color tickets in his backpack at all times. Just, Do you know what I'm talking just, about? Yeah. No, I don't know who you're talking about, but I know uh, people that have done this. Yeah. They're like, I think I have today's color for drink tickets. Yeah. And he just like always had tickets ready. No I mean, I'm not going to lie. I feel like they were such currency in New York during stand-up that I was like, I think if I had an extra one, I'd keep it in my wallet and be like, I don't know, in case I end up back at that bar. <laughs> like, so sad because I need a vodka soda so badly. Ugh, I had one of the worst vodka sodas in my life yesterday. I was just Why like was such... It was just disgusting. Maybe I've, I've, it was probably well or something, but I was yeah. just like, this tastes like college and I don't, why is this happening? Yeah, it's probably this bad vodka. Yeah. But it's like, even with, like, I, I it, was, it was just so bad. Remember when somebody asked you, what do you, would you like Grey Goose or Smirnoff? It's like, what, what is that question? Nobody wants Smirnoff over Grey Goose. <laughs> okay, so color of the day, that's my two cents on that. So, everybody's got their guns on everybody and they're telling Benson, like, we're vice. You just blew a two-year undercover investigation. And we get to Benson looking a little bit panicked and then it's the credits. So now Barbara shows up at the precinct and he goes, Lieutenant, what fresh hell awaits? And it's like, do you hate us, VU? I just love that he wa- He is so funny. Like, you know, we did lose, like, when Munch left, we lost a lot of the humor. Barbara had some of the humor and then he's gone too. We need more... We need like a ADA. Carisi's too serious. We need an ADA with a couple zingers like Barba. So anyway, Benson fills him in, shows him all the high up creeps that they busted. Barba's not surprised about Judge Wheeler at all. Clearly there have been rumblings. And the girls aren't talking. No one knows shit. These two vice detectives are named Russo and Jefferson. 
and they say they were working their own case, but they're not telling anybody who threw the party. The only person at this party who wasn't an underage sex worker or a public servant was Nina Kelly, a nun, much like Sister Peg. Um, So now we're in interrogation with uh, Nina Kelly and she's got her wig off and she's talking to uh, Carisi and Benson. And they're like, so why was a nun at a sex party? And she's like, I'd really prefer to talk to a a woman. I'm not comfortable with him. And it's like, girl, same. Like, I would almost always rather talk to Benson than any man. So he leaves and she goes, I'm not comfortable with male cops. And it's like, again, ditto. And Benson says, yeah, as a madam, I bet the cops really bum you out. And Sister Nina's like, I'm not a madam. I've spent months trying to infiltrate the ring to save these girls. So this is a lot like the Lily Taylor character in the Super Bowl episode of Undercover Mother, where they do a big Super Bowl day sting. And they think she's a madam at first, but she's really just been working this ring forever trying to get in. Benson tries to get info from her and she's like, I can't be found to be cooperating or I won't be able to save any more girls. So now everyone's so tight-lipped about this party. What's going on? And now Dodds is in another room with these two guys from Vice and they're keeping their lips zipped and this is above their pay grade, they said. Their cover story in the operation is that they're dirty cops. That's why they were allowed to have guns and badges like on them at the time. But there's no record of these guys being undercover and their captain told them not to file anything because all these Johns are so high-powered, they'd have access to that information. So the captain finally shows up and he is actually in another episode. He's in the episode beef that we have not done on the podcast, but we do it on live shows. And he plays the guy who writes exposés about like dangerous toys and meats and, and like, he's like, tries to be a Michael Moore type of like expose guy. And, um, in this episode, he has like really bad, puffy, long white sideburns. Well, my favorite part in Beef, you know, we've done that episode live a few times when I thought some guy was a dean of a school and he didn't look like a dean and you were like, his name is just Dean. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I do love that. (laughs) So long white sideburns, man, that we know from Beef, he he rolls in, he shades baby Dodds with a quickness. He's like, I thought your dad said you were moving up, like immediate shade to Dodds. And then he goes to chat with Benson and she's like, sorry for the confusion, but like, why don't we work together on this? And he's like, ooh, wish I could help, but this is a long game for us. These guys are too high up. And then he reveals his true feelings that where SVU sees victims, they see whores, basically. He goes, these girls are not exactly Madonnas. And it's just like, I remember what- Why do you have to be a Madonna? Why? No, exactly. I mean, he thinks these are- First of all, if they're under 18, they're not able to consent really in sex work. So it just reminds me of what we talked to Dr. Heather Berg about, who is a a woman who writes about sex work and who we just found out is cousins with our producer, Casey. But we talked to her for the episode, Counselor, It's Chinatown, just to get some perspective on the the life of sex workers and get some facts about sex trafficking. And what she told us was that the majority of girls that get funneled into sex work and sex trafficking are done so by a member of their family or someone they know personally. So acting like these girls are just like these like young teen whores is like so wild and so like, so 30 years ago. I don't know. This man has a very old, old worldview. They also refuse to acknowledge that like teens are kids or like that it's wrong because they want to fuck teens. So like whatever narrative they were going to have in their head to like excuse it and not see themselves as the pedophiles they are. Yeah. Well, we see Liv obviously get a look of like, ugh, like fuck you. Because it's it's wild that this episode comes out in 2016. Like you would hear stuff like that all the time when we would do older episodes. But 
like, oh, she's no virgin or she's no angel or whatever. But it's like, you think people's like viewpoints change, but they don't. Of course not. And so, yeah, nobody's does. But I mean, mine do. I'm constantly evolving. (laughs) I am just thinking about um, the way we treat women that come forward about stuff to this day. The Amber Heard trial was like a very telling way of how we view women. Yeah. I don't want to hear another fucking message about Amber Heard. Do not send me one. (laughs) Um, So you see Liv get Me too. Don't send me either. (laughs) <laughs> to the personals or the business. Um, so you see Liv get pissed and he's like, whatever, we're already inside. You guys can't get involved or this whole operation will be blown. And he's like, bye-bye, I'm getting my guys and I'm heading out. And she's like, well, why don't you let me run it by Barba? And he big times her and he goes, oh, why don't you call the deputy inspector and see what he has to say? So she's like, she basically is like, well, let me see what the ADA has to say. And he's like, I've actually got people way above the ADA, so fuck you. So SVU is getting fully shut out of this whole investigation. So now the gang's all discussing- Which to them just makes them want to investigate more. I know. It's like, don't you guys watch the show? Don't you know what they're like? They That only is going to light a fire underneath them even harder. So the gang's all discussing how they're getting iced out. And of course, Nepo Baby Dodds is like, want me to ask daddy? And this time Liv's like, yeah, it's worth a try. Any, <laughs> anything we can do. And Benson and Carisi are walking and talking about options. And Sister Nina is like, you're just going to let those bastards walk. So because they have badges, they can assault 16-year-old girls. And she's talking about the vice undercover. She's not even talking about like Judge Wheeler and all these other guys. And she says, they've assaulted tons of girls tons of times. They're not cops, they're rapists. So done, done. We got to look into this further, right? I love Sister Nina. Yeah, she's great. Heart of gold. At St. Bernadine's, which is a halfway house for women, another nun, an older nun there named Sister Ida corroborates Sister Nina. She's like, Nina doesn't lie. She's legit. If she said it, it's true. And Benson asks the nun about a girl named Cara Gutierrez. Same name as mine, but Cara with a C. She brought Cara to them six months ago. She was very traumatized, but healing from you know, she extricated her from this ring. And she's like, um, but she will not talk to anyone without Sister Nina. So Benson goes to um, probably get Sister Nina. And she, the nun really quickly goes, but good to see you again. How's Noah? You're like, you adopted him, right? And so I guess this is a shelter that Ellie Porter used to be at. And the nun says, we still say the rosary for Ellie every year. So yeah, it's um got a little, you know, we constantly have to bring up Benson's, tumultuous adoption at every corner in these seasons. So we brought Kara to them. It I'm really sorry. is like, these episodes are jam-packed enough. We don't need custody battles on top There's of so it. much going on. They're like, sprinkle in a little bit of Noah. Maybe Noah <laughs> broke another finger. Let's go, come on. Okay, so now Rollins and Benson are back at the halfway house uh, with Sister Nina, and they're talking to Kara. She's very scared. And she points out Russo out of from the iPad. And she's like, he's one of the cops who's at all the parties and one of the ones that made us do stuff. And then she also IDs Jefferson. So now she's ID'd both cops out of nowhere, out of a lineup. And Benson's like, I hate to do this, but I really need the details. And Kara's like, okay, well, these guys forced us to go down on them. They, We had to pretend we liked them. And then one time they got super drunk and they brought me into a room and they took turns like assaulting me. So then eventually Sister Nina earned her trust and got her out of that life. And they ask, well, who took you to the parties? And Nina's like, no way. She is not talking about that. It's too dangerous. Where is this going? So that's the act, that's the commercial break and the end of act one. But like, what's going on? Like, who's so high up that we can't find out? You won't tell us like who these people are. So now 
Top of Act Two, Benson brings this info to Tucker at IAB. And Baby Dodds doesn't think that these guys are even undercover. They think that they're just like using the shield to like be part of a sex ring. But Benson says, well, their captain confirmed the op and Dodds thinks he's in on it too. And Tucker's like, well, this is going to be hard to prove, but I've also dealt with these two cops before, twist. He says about a year ago, but nothing stuck because people accuse vice cops of shit all the time, it seems, I guess. So... If IAB questions them about a high-level investigation, they're going to have to give up the information to save their shields. And then Benson and Tucker exchange what I would call a sexual look. (laughs) And um, this is episode 17, and we just got confirmation that these two are hooking up in episode 15, Collateral Damages, where our buddy Hank Abraham goes bye-bye for child sex abuse images. So they are together, but they're trying to keep it kosher and uh, business-like in the squad, but you can tell there's something going on there. So now in IAB interrogation, which looks, by the way, like the lovely conference room of a modern hotel. Like it's like (laughs) the lighting is beautiful. There's like gorgeous, like high gloss furniture. It's beautiful. They've got mustache man Russo and his lawyer. It's maybe his lawyer, maybe his IAB rep. Are those, are those lawyers or are they IAB reps, just IAB reps? That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that, but he's got a woman there with him who's like defending him. And then it's uh, Tucker and his partner. And so he's like, tell me, we want to hear your side. And he's like, well, whose allegations are these? The allegations of hookers? And he's like, try high school girls. And Russo says- Well, not only that, like, how are you working at Vice? You're you're claiming you're there to help and be a cop and yet you're calling them hookers and they're worthless and they're like, don't matter and their opinions don't matter. Then why are you working to help? Like, why are you there then? I think they're there because of a higher level drug issue. They don't really care about the trafficking. That's not really why they're in there. They're in there for like drugs and like uh, extortion. I don't know. I think vice is mostly concentrated on on drug stuff, right? No, vice is all vices. It's like- um, but, sex- Oh yeah, so it's, it's sex crime. It's prostitution, yes. So you're right. Oh, so they see them as criminals. Because they to me, see it's them like, as prostitutes. Yes. Yeah. Because to me, I'm like, if you're claiming that you're there to help and you're a good cop, why are you like dismissing these women and victims? You know? Yeah. Because that's that's a full worldview uh, difference. They don't see them yeah. as victims, even though they're underage, because they see them dressed up, hooking up with guys for money, and they think that's like a choice and something that they're consenting to and that they have the ability to consent to. The guy, Russo, says, these girls are low-hanging fruit. The roots of the tree can't be discussed. And he admits that he's let the, he's like let these girls get trafficked, and he's like, it's part of the job. And Tucker's like, I disagree. And they're like, how about the rapes of 16-year-old girls? And then we switch to the interview. It's like all the same people, including the IAB rep, but it's Jefferson. It's the same room, just different go- cop in the chair. And he's like, I do not understand this, Lisa. I, wa- I watched it six times and I can't understand what he's saying. So tell me if you can help me figure this out. He goes, we're cops. We don't engage in the sexual activity so they make us as cops. That's why they're coming after us. Say it again. We're cops. We don't engage in the sexual activity so they make us as cops. That's why we're, they're coming after us. What are you talking about? Like your whole thing is that you're a dirty cop. Everyone knows you're cops. So you would be expected to engage in the sexual activity. So nobody yeah. had to make you as a cop because that's your job. That's your cover that you're a cop. I don't I don't really get it. If anyone can help me clarify, I watched it six times and I did not understand the fucking what the guy was saying. And he's like, it's their pimps putting them up to it. And they're trying to create reasonable doubt since SVU busted them. And um, he won't name any names. And he says... 
if one PP won't give up the target, maybe that should tell you something. And I think that kind of gets to Tucker because he's like, yeah, that's true. Like if this is that high up, like what's going on? So back at the precinct, they're playing whiteboard, you know, their little whiteboard Tetris game that they like to play with the whole gang and Tucker's there. And um, he's like, Tucker's like, they called my bluff. They'd rather risk a morals charge than name names. And none of these girls are cooperating either. Two of them, Natalia and Margaret, went to St. Fabiola's and so did Cara Gutierrez. And this perks up Tucker's little ears because he's like, I might know someone who works there. His cousin Eugene is a psychologist and a priest. And the last he heard, he worked at the school. Carisi is dumbfounded that Tucker doesn't know every detail of his cousin's employment history. He's like, he's your cousin? You don't even know if he works at the school? It's like, I have cousins. I don't even know what state they live in. Like, you know what I mean? Like, well, you Italians know, are all about family. The Italians. I mean, they're family. We just have a huge family. I have dozens of cousins. Like, I just can't remember. And so does Tucker. If they're Irish Catholics, they have yeah. tons of cousins. Yeah. So it's just weird to be like, oh, you didn't get, like, he didn't post it in the family Facebook chat or whatever that he was moving to another school. It's just so funny. Carisi's like, he's your cousin? You don't even know? <laughs> I forgot what comic did this joke, but I just saw someone be like, do white people have cousins? I feel like white people don't have cousins. <laughs> But, <laughs> well, it is funny to me when some people, their cousins are like their siblings, you know, people yeah. are just so close to their cousins and other people just aren't. I think it's like totally different um, family dynamics. Um, but I'm trying to think, I have, my cousins in New York City are the cousins that I'm the closest to. Like you met uh, my cousin, Seb you've met my cousin Sebastian a bunch of times. Like those are my cousins I'm the closest to. And then the rest of them just live far away or one I used to be close to when I was a kid, but now she's a full Trumper and she blocked me on um, Facebook. So yeah, there's that. Good so that there's that, Carisi. That's some, sometimes why people don't know when their cousins change schools. So, so then baby Dodds goes, estranged Irish relatives, how rare. Because Tucker talks about how like him becoming a priest, they kind of lost uh things they had in common, like that they they sort of separated over that. And so Tucker what, like fucking? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, fucking I think and like fun? I, I think maybe, you know, later it's sort of accused that Tucker like lost the Lord or, you know, he doesn't have like the same religious fervor that maybe his family does. So um, Tucker's like, I'm going to go check with him and him and Benson have another little flirty moment. So they're laying it on. So now at St. Fabiola's, we see Tucker's cousin, Eugene, is our old buddy, one of the original friends of the pod, Michael O'Keefe. Um, yeah, that's wild. He was one of our, like, first guests. Yeah, like, full pandemic. You were in an Airbnb when we talked to him. We were sitting next to each other with, like, the splitter. It was so different. If we, if you remember one of our first episodes, Counterfeit, he played, like, a bad cop who was kind of, like, a red herring bad cop. He didn't end up being, like, the bad cop, but... But the and true he, crime was a bad cop. Right. And he was um, Amanda Seyfried's dad in the episode Outcry as well. So he's been, he's also been in a ton of regular Law and Order, I think. I don't know about Criminal Intent, but he's been in the mothership a lot. So he was the one that told us that they established something called the O'Keefe Rule, where people had to wait like six months to a year or something before coming back on the show because he was coming back so often at the beginning. So... You cousin Eugene immediately makes a joke about Tucker being in a church. He's like, am I going to get struck by lightning? Like he's making all these gags about, you know, because I guess Tucker has, like I said, left left the Lord behind. And uh, he's like, what happened? Is some everybody okay? And Tucker's like, Aunt Caroline's fine, even though she smokes three packs a day. And then they shake hands like they don't hug. This is police business. 
He's like, do you know why I'm here? And Eugene is like, of course, I see Natalia and Margaret. I check in with them every day. I even took one of their confessions. And Tucker's like, um, well, can you give me any info that they told you? And he's like, between the seal of the confessional and the HIPAA laws, my lips are sealed. Like, I can't talk. He's like, well, what about any other troubled girls? Have you heard about Kara Gutierrez? And he's like, oh yeah, she dropped out six months ago. Drugs, you know, she's an addict living in foster care. These gangs know who to prey on. So they're really trying to like, push the conversation towards gangs a lot. So Tucker's like, which gangs? And the cop, the dirty cops have been trying to push everything on BX9. And everyone's like, this seems a little high up for a street gang. Like BX9's <laughs> yeah. not having parties where judges are invited. Do you know what I mean? Like that's not yeah. really the vibe. BX9 is like killing someone and like leaving their body in a tree. So before he can even answer about which gangs, the Monsignor shows up. This guy's name is Monse- Monsignor... I don't know. I this keep is ra- the thing with all these Catholics. They're more drag than drag. You know what I mean? <laughs> with all their little funny names and hats. It's just like, it's so wild to me that. Yeah. Oh, God. Well, the hierarchy of it too. I mean, it's like monarchy and like figuring out who's higher than who. But the but cops are like that. Who's higher than a lieutenant or a captain or a like, you know, this and that. Like these hierarchies that exist in these institutions where you can't. Did you see Spicy Meatballs' um, latest drag number that has catapulted her to, I think, big fame? No. She went, um, who's that little twerp? I mean. That keeps lying about stuff in the government who was a drag queen? Oh, George Santos, George Santos. She went up as the guy. What's his name again? George Santos. (gasps) I love this. So she came out as George Santos and then throughout the number turned into the drag queen version of him and had like, you know, a wig waiting and um, the reveals are a red glitter dress. But I, it's just like, drag is such art and so cool and fuck Tennessee and fuck Instagram for shadow banning her. And um, it was just such a cool number. That is, no, Meatball's so good. I just finally got to meet Meatball last summer at Nicole's house and was like, I know Meatball's prom date. I'm friends with Meatball's prom date. So I was like, I know the girl you went to prom with. And he's like, oh my God, no way. So we well, had fun. And so before, you know, she comes out in George Santos drag, like news things are on a big screen, whatever. She is shadow banned, but if you can find her, well, we'll share it. We'll share it. And we'll, we'll share, share it when this when this episode comes out. Yeah. Casey, can you send me a note? <laughs> so yes, this Monsignor shows up in his high Monsignor drag and he's like, he's like, I'm sorry. Like, we really just can't talk about the students. And they're like, okay, well, what about Sister Nina? And Monsignor says, well, I only know one Sister Nina. And um, it's like, there's only one Sister Nina in all of New York City. And they're like, and she's on medical leave for psychiatric reasons. And I'm upset to hear that she's been dealing with children because they can't sanction her being around kids. So what's going on there? So now we're back in Barbara's office and Barbara's like, so you've got these dirty cops and the key witness is a nun with mental health issues. And Benson's like, yeah, but that could just be like a case they pinned on her to discredit her. And so the cop, and Barbara's like, all right, the cops are out, the Johns are out. All of the girls are out except Kara, but she's too scared to testify. Would she maybe come and talk to Barbara? So now we're at the halfway house where they saw Kara originally. And Sister Ida's like, she's been in her room all day. She didn't even come out for dinner. They go to her room and they find Kara lying in bed, OD'd with a needle in her arm. And Rollins actually says, no need to call a bus. She's gone. So very sad. And that is the end of act two. 
Top of Act 3 lives like, where did she get the heroin? We've got our friend of the pod, Karen Sen Lee, playing the Emmy, Susan Chung. And she goes, the mechanism of death is respiratory arrest due to pulmonary edema caused by acute drug intoxication. Uh, and they tell her Kara's been clean for six months. And the Emmy goes, well, sometimes addicts go back to their old dosage. And Rollins is like, but is it possible someone gave her a hot shot? And we have heard about hot shots a lot in the show, but I decided to look up the definition. And it is a dose of heroin or a similar drug contaminated with a toxic substance that is intended to kill the user. So the doc says, well, I can't prove it, but if this concentration were going around, I'd be seeing a lot more ID ODs. It's kind of like the way that fentanyl is huge right now. Like, you know, there's fentanyl in all kinds of cocaine and molly and stuff like that. And like doctors at, at emergency rooms kind of see what the trends are. Um, so she's ruling it undetermined pending the SVU investigation. But she said, if it makes any difference, it was a very humane death. She would have been fast asleep by the time her lungs filled with water. Where does the water come from? I don't know. Just like water in your body? I don't know. I was confusing to me, but um, I'm sure someone will send me a graphic description. So they tell um, Sister Nina what happened and she's obviously devastated. She knows Kara was killed and she never should have brought her to the SVU detectives. And Benson is like, tell us who did this. And Nina's like, wait a second. Who even knew Kara was at the shelter? It had to be someone in your squad. Like, I only brought you guys here. And she's like, I'm going to be next. And Benson's like, we got to get you out of here. I know a place where you can go. Now, we're talking to Sister Ida, the nun at the halfway house. And she's like, Kara was super upset. A priest went to her room to receive her confession. It was Father Akintola. He's a lovely man from West Africa who fills in sometimes. He's not the regular priest. So now we're at St. Horatio's talking to Father Akintola. He's so sad and he's heartbroken about Kara. And he, how did I mispronounce my own name? And he <laughs> says, Kara was struggling with the arrest of her former classmates. He says he didn't see anything. He didn't see anybody go into her room and that Kara was an addict and they always find a way to get drugs. And then right as they're leaving, he's like, I could talk to the other girls and see what they know. Like he's trying to be helpful. So back to the whiteboard with the gang. Who else knew we were talking to Kara besides us? The only people that knew we were talking to Kara were Sister Nina, Sister Ida, Barba, and IAB. And maybe the vice cops, Russo and Jefferson. And he's like, I never put Kara's name in the system and I didn't even tell my partner about this. And then Benson realizes, but you did check with your cousin Eugene about her. Dun, dun if I do say so myself. So Tucker rushes to the church with Benson to confront his cousin, Eugene, who's like chatting with a bunch of young Catholic schoolgirls, which I do think is like the show being like, something's up. And he's immediately accusing him and Eugene's playing dumb. And he's like, she died because of the drugs. And Tucker is laying it on him. And he's like, this is you. You got her killed. And, and Eugene's like, I'm denying part of being anything. They were like, so are you part of the ring or did they put you up to it? And he goes, neither. I was Kara's guidance counselor. The accent O'Keefe is doing is a lot. It's a lot. I was I just about to say like, is it really good or is this terrible? I can't tell because at times I think it sounds Boston. But maybe he moved from Boston. Who knows? I mean, I it's get the feeling Tucker's silly. family is from New York. I feel like you feel like they're Queens Irish or something, you know? Yeah, but the cousins could be everywhere. But like, it was just, it was just so much. But I'm wondering what the director or the other actors, were they like, you're killing it, O'Keefe. We yeah. love what you're doing. Or was everyone talking shit about him behind his back being like, 
what's with this accent? I don't know. It seemed really heavy. And at times I thought, is this Boston? Like I couldn't. So the accent work is truly wild. And Benson has to calm both of the men down. She's like getting in between them. She's pulling Tucker off of his cousin. And Eugene says he never let anything slip about Kara. She was in with the gangs. There's no conspiracy. He thinks Tucker's been in IAB too long because he thinks everyone's corrupt. And Eugene accuses Tucker of turning his back on God. And Tucker goes, they've got something on you. And then Liv pulls Tucker away and he runs out of her clutches, goes back and grabs Eugene and goes, I know it was you. And it's very Godfather. Like that's a classic Godfather yeah, line. but I'm with Tucker. It's like the cousin is using it against him, but no, this is Tucker's job. Yeah. He is IAB because he is good at sniffing out, shit out rats. You know? Yeah. Um, and also... um. To be like, it's the gangs, it's the gangs, I know it's the gang. How? How do you know it's the gangs? Yeah, give us the proof. Tell us the names of the people, like who, what have the girls told you about the gangs, like what? And you have a fake accent, so you're shady. Yeah. <laughs> so finally Liv screams, enough, and breaks them up, and Tucker goes, I'm coming for you, and God's not gonna help your ass. So now we're outside the church, Tucker is still fuming and says, Eugene is a politician. He calculates every word he says. But Liv's like, but you think he's running a sex trafficking ring? He goes, maybe, or he's protecting it. And he's like, I want warrants to dig into his financials, everything, computers, texts, like whatever. Liv's like, you got to chill and let SVU like pursue this. This is not your case. And he's like, we got to get Nina to a safe place. And Liv's like, she already is. So now we're back at Benson's place and she's obviously given Lucy the afternoon off and let Sister Nina be her nanny because Sister Nina's in the apartment with Noah when Liv and Tucker arrive. And Nina immediately looks sketched out by Tucker. And I do appreciate how she is fully paranoid about every man that walks onto, into her life with reason. Um, and they ask her, is there someone at St. Fabiola's we should be looking at? And Liv begs her like, please tell us. And she goes... Uh, well, you know, a lot of times at the at that place, the guidance counselors know what's going on. And Tucker goes, so we should look at Father Eugene. And Nina's like, how do you know about Father Eugene? And uh-oh, she finds out that Tucker's cousin is Father Eugene and she is not happy. She slowly starts moving towards Noah. She picks him up and she goes, Noah, let's say bye to Mr. Tucker. He's got to go right now. Bye-bye. And it's like, She's just lightly holding Noah hostage. Like, it's really kind of freaky, but you don't think yeah, she's going to hurt- Noah's cute. Yeah, and he's like, bye. The... <laughs> yeah. That Noah's really cute. And it's like, I don't want to put any blame on Olivia, but maybe bringing a nun with possible mental health issues to watch your child alone wasn't the move. <laughs> like, maybe, maybe have a tandem thing where Lucy's there at the same time. Especially after the Calvin of it all. Like, you've already gone through this nonsense. Like, you need boundaries, but like... Yes. I don't know. She She's about the victims and protecting. Yeah. And didn't she hear the, about Danny Beck and the fire with Elle Fanning? Yeah. Oh my God. That's so true. I'm sure, I'm sure Maloney filled her in when she came back and was like, you won't believe what this dumb bitch. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Tucker goes, nope, you're right. I'm going to go. He backs out. He leaves. Liv is breathing heavily and she's like, put Noah down. Tucker's gone. This isn't what you think. And then she puts Noah down and Liv takes him into another room to go play with an iPad. When she comes back, Nina is freaking out, like trying to grab all of her shit. She's like, I don't, I, she doesn't trust Liv. Father Eugene's cousin is in charge of the investigation. Like, are you fucking kidding me? And 
I could see with everything she's seen with all these higher up people being involved that that would absolutely like spook the shit out of her. And she explains like, no, Tucker and his cousin hate each other. It's not a big deal. But Nina's like not hearing any of it. She's like, what are you going to have me committed again? More shock treatments? I am not crazy. So now we're getting a whole nother level of the trauma that Sister Nina's been through too, that the church seems to have committed her and put her through like involuntary psychiatric treatments that she didn't need. And she thinks Liv is either in on this whole thing or she's an idiot. And Liv's like, please don't leave. Please don't go. And then she's like, you brought me here to kill me. And then she's like, look, just tell them I promise never to talk about the trafficking ring again and runs out. And it's like, if Liv brought you there to kill you, you'd be dead. She wouldn't be letting you run out of the building. You know what I mean? She wouldn't be letting you walk out of the room. But says something. Um, This episode weirdly has a fifth act. Um, In Barba's office, the Monsignor is in there and he's talking to Barba and they're wrapping up a convo. And then as they're leaving, he goes, I have faith the DA's office will do the right thing. I want to spare these girls any more exploitation. So then Dodds and Benson are waiting to get into uh, the office. They are there to chat with Barba. And... um, Uh, the Monsignor thanks them for saving the girls and comments how Kara was such a pretty young girl. And it's like, that's not the vibe at SVU, sir. Like, you could talk about how she was a promising student and a wonderful person, but we don't need to talk about how hot she was. Um, When he leaves... Benson is like, what the fuck was he doing here? And Barbara's like, still trying to figure that out, but he's not really offering anything. Now, where are the arrest warrants for Father Eugene and Father Akintola? Barbara's like, listen, babies, a lot of judges don't want to touch this. And I'm wondering myself if we're making the right moves here. And then Benson tells Barbara about- Of course we are. Yeah, they always are. If it's this like high up and it's all this stuff, that's reason to dig, not escape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, And it's also like, it's 2016 when this episode comes out. Like, it's not weird to dig into the Catholic church. (laughs) Like, it's not weird at all. Um, So- Benson tells Barba about Sister Nina's paranoid freakout. And he's like, can you blame her? Vice and possibly priests are trafficking girls. Then there's the Kara leak. And Barba asks Baby Dodds, why don't you step out of the room for a second? And he asks Liv, what do you know about Tucker? And he, she goes, we go way back. He's intense. He's no nonsense. Good at his job. And Barba's like, but he did try to ruin both of your partner's lives, right? <laughs> she's like, she's like, ah, we're past that. It's pretty funny. And then Barba says, well, the Monsignor made some serious allegations. And she's like, oh, against Father Eugene? And he goes, no, against Tucker. And Liv's like, what now? And he said, Monsignor Malregan and Eugene went to Tucker a year ago with info that Vice was running girls from their school. They named Russo and Jefferson and they said Tucker buried it. And Liv is like, there's no way he wanted to kill Eugene the other day. And he's like, maybe he just wanted you to think that. And it's like, I don't think Tucker went to drama school. And Liv is like, there's no way. And Barbara's like, I thought you guys all hated this guy. I'm so confused. And Liv is defending him. And she's like, his job is to be relentless. And then Barbara, basically a detective as well as a lawyer, sniffs it out and goes, are you involved with him? And Liv goes, the lot, the violins swell. And Liv goes, don't ask me that. And there's not that many questions that Liv darts and dodges in this series. And this is one where she's like, don't, don't even get into that with me. She's always in secret relationships though, like, right? Because she didn't tell people about Cassidy, really. She didn't tell people about Tucker. She didn't tell people about Harry Connick Jr. 
There's the Start FBI guy. Start fucking outside of the office. Yeah, Jesus well, Christ. She's, she's busy. Where's she going to meet people? <laughs> we She had a trainer that one time. I was hopeful, but... Um, oh, they weren't fucking. They were just working I out. know, but wouldn't it be fun just for Liv to get fucked by a guy with a great body and like, he has, yeah, there's no combo. They just like yeah. watch fucking reality TV and bang. Yeah. Um, so then... Barbara's like, I just confided in you that an IAB captain might be involved in a sex trafficking ring and you don't mention that you two are fucking. And she goes, you're wrong about him. Bring him in, ask him yourself. And Barbara says, you and I are done talking. And Liv looks busted, which is a rare look. You just never see her looking like, fuck, I fucked up in this way. And she walks out. She meets Tucker at a dive bar and it looks very cozy to me. And he goes, nobody saw you. And she goes, here? Like, it's the worst bar in the world. And I'm like, I drink there. It looks fun. Well, and, it's um, like in Sex in the City when um, Carrie and Big are having the affair and she's like, well, no one knows us at 57th. And said, well, they only know us here. And it's like, they're, it just blocks away. Like someone yeah, yeah, could have yeah. one doctor appointment, a meeting, a cousin's and Like, it, it was so funny the way... But I wasn't living in New York at the time, but it is so funny how it was like, Brooklyn, I'd rather die. Uptown, no thanks. <laughs> Even the housewives are like, I don't go below 14th. And it's like, it is just such a tiny city to it think is. you, you run into sneak people around. all the time. Yeah. Yes, you need to leave the boroughs, I think, if you want to have a true affair. You need to be. That's why they bust people in Jersey fucking and sometimes in the show. So anyway, Liv's like, I'm a lieutenant. I drink scotch out of a crystal highball, bitch. I shouldn't be in a place like this. And uh, she goes, so group one is investigating you for sex trafficking, corruption, and murder. And uh, he goes, yep, cousin Eugene set me up good. And he says, you know how this goes. Don't stick your neck out for me or it'll look like you're covering for me. They can't prove shit. I didn't do shit. I'll be fine. And Liv's like, yeah, well, I'm probably gonna still do stuff. Like, and he's like, you want to go after the church, City Hall, and Albany for an IAB guy that most people hate? Stay out of it. And then Liv's phone buzzes and she's like, well, looks like I can't really stay out of it. One PP wants to see her immediately. Back at the squad. <sighs> yeah. Back at the squad, Baby Dodds definitely calls Barba Barbara. He says something about Barbara and I definitely heard it. I rewound it three times and it sounds like Barbara. And he's telling Rollins and Carisi how Barbara wouldn't say shit in front of him. Uh, and then uh, Rollins like, did you call daddy yet? And he's like, yeah, but he hasn't gotten back to me. It's like, I love how everybody now is just like, yeah, call your dad. And Rollins um, brings up the Catholic church and then looks at Carisi and apologizes to Mr. Catholic himself, who's like, Carisi goes, 99% of the priests are good guys. It's like, where'd you get that figure? I really don't think it's that's the figure. I, I think the figure is definitely way off. And he's like, but the church brought this on themselves. So we Carisi does not think that the church is in yeah. is infallible in any way. Yeah, it's like the not all men of yes, religion. It not is. all the priests. Are yeah, you but sure? the also the 1% is such a small number. Like it's definitely bigger than that. And then Carisi says. Barbara too. I swear to God, I heard Carisi say Barbara, but he's a little bit more mealy mouth. He's more like Barbara. So like, I couldn't really hear if he said it, but I think everybody go back and check. I think they both say it. It's the last two minutes of the episode. Dodds and Carisi both say Barbara. Anyway, Benson walks in, asks Carisi and Rollins, get me some evidence boxes. And then Dodds, and she goes, Dodds, can I talk to you for a minute? He goes in her office and he's like, what's up? And she's like, you'd know better than me. He's clueless. And she's like, you're actually telling me you don't know what's going on. And he really doesn't. And I believe him. He looks like a totally like adult. Yeah. And she's like, I'm out. Effective immediately. And Rollins and Carisi come in with the boxes. And she's like, Dodds is acting commander of SVU starting now. And she tells all of them, 
you're dismissed as she starts packing shit into boxes. And we see her take her Lieutenant Olivia and at Benson nameplate and the ep goes dick wolf out on that. And we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, this is such a cliffhanger. To those who don't watch the show, you're really, it's like you're watching a narrative soap opera. Like this is the 1930s and check back with your radio next week. Like this is yeah. a good episode. And next, yeah. I mean, yeah. This, back in they, the day, kids, you couldn't binge. So you had to wait and <laughs> wait a whole week and see what happened. Because these episodes did air after each other. Um like a week after each other. So it was like, but there's not even like a to be continued on it. You just end the episode being like, is Olivia Benson fired? Like, and you never really do know. Sometimes people leave these shows, but I think it would be, you know, spoiler alert, she's still around. Uh, But (laughs) we're going to find out what happens with the rest of this. But before that, Lisa, please take me down the true crime street. My pleasure. We'll see you soon. Listen, we're all SVU fans. We love a family drama. We love a mystery to solve. And you got to get hooked into a story with the details. You need the visuals. You need the storylines with the twists and the turns. And that is what June's Journey has and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young girl on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murderer. Dun, 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 dun. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. The game is filled with all these beautiful detailed scenes from the 20s, like lavish estates and gardens. And of course, little hidden clues are everywhere. There's twists, turns, catchy tunes. It all takes you deeper into this storyline. And if you play well enough, you can make it into the detective club. And there you can chat with other players and even compete with or against them, which is pretty exciting. And you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. And can you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. Okay, love that. And guess what? It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Listen, I'm going to be talking about undercover nuns. There are nuns and they go undercover and they help sex trafficking and, you know, human trafficking victims all across the world. All, a lot of the articles were in 2015 and I wonder if they hired PR. Like, I don't know what happened in 2015, but every single article had the exact same facts over and over across. I'm saying Complex was involved. HuffPo, <laughs> like everyone had an article stating the exact same facts in 2015. Wow. So I think they did a real big PR push or like something Or, or it just broke and everybody was like, how interesting, who knows? Yeah, and then also a lot of sources I found were like Christian news and I refused to um, use those because, <laughs> you know, especially after we talked to that professor and like, Christians' views on human trafficking oftentimes are also anti-sex work porn and it's like convoluted. And it's not just about helping people. It's also about like prude culture and like anti-woman and sex. So, you know, we it's so this was a little confusing. It was just like this PR push, a lot of Christian news. And I would be reading something and then I would read one thing and be like, wait, what source is this? Okay, it's Uh a Christian thing. (laughs) It would always like say one sentence too far. But 
you know, we did our best here. So um, this is straight up um, a low-key network of about 1,100 religious sisters, aka nuns, and they go undercover as sex workers to help rescue trafficking victims for brothels. Um, the group is called Talitha Kum. Talitha Kum. Use your imagination. But if you're a Bible thumper, you know what this is. Um, and it's from the Bible. Jesus says this. And he and it means, little girl, I say to you, rise up. And he said it in Aramaic um, to a 12-year-old girl who died. And then Jesus took the girl and then they got up and walked around. So if you want to know more about this, it's Mark's fifth chapter, Gospel of Mark's fifth chapter. So did it sound like I was speaking truly French? Like, I don't know anything I just said. Um, <laughs> Was it obvious I was reading word for word? Um, so that's what the organization is called. And they see its name as an expression of the transformative power of compassion and mercy for those who have been wounded by the many forms of exploitation. Their mission is to share and maximize resources that religious life has on behalf of um, prevention, protection, and assistance, awareness uh, raising, and the denouncement of trafficking in persons. And that's in quotes from their mission statement on their website in our show notes. And so these infiltrating super nuns um, <laughs> go into the brothels and a lot, oftentimes they'll buy children being sold into slavery. Um, and a, a lot of the figures were really... Heart. So, like in 2015, a lot of the stuff said we're in 80 countries and expanding to 140 countries demand because of the demand of efforts to combat human trafficking. And then I found as of 2021, it's in 92 countries, but some places say 77 countries. So I don't even know. I don't even know if I can yeah. name 92 countries, but it's around the world and the nuns are out there. And there's also like stories of nuns infiltrating and helping trafficked victims and sex workers dating back to the 70s, 60s. Like, I found lots of things. So this is wow. like an organized network and they're working together and the Pope's even endorsed this group. But like, it seems like nuns have been really going hard protecting women. For The nuns are nunning, doll. The nuns are nunning. And may I ask, how many priests are getting out there infiltrating fucking sex rings? Are any priests doing any of that work? Just wondering. No, it just the, seems like there's a seems like there's a fundamental difference between a nun and a priest in this situation. Well, the priests are like um, power, power, power. Listen to me talk, and the nuns are like, we want to help. Want to help? People. Yeah. There's a line in Marcel the Shell where he's like, he I forgot what he's comparing, but he goes, oh, it's about gardening, like how the grandma Grandma Connie works with the bugs, and Marcel the Shell goes, you know, it's like Sister Act where you know they do graffiti for transformation or something. Like Marcel, <laughs> like, Marcel has like a really funny line about Sister Act too. I love that. Wait, uh, did you know that on my semester abroad in Rome, I lived in a convent? No. You're like a little Katy Perry. No, and we had these really cool nuns that helped us. And I would go back like years later and be like, hi, I studied abroad here. And they'd be like, how are you? We remember like, and they would wear New Balance sneakers like underneath their little outfits. And they looked so cute. And they were always like so cool and nice. They just helped like run the convent where my study abroad program was. Yeah, but I, you know, I also hear about nuns hitting kids with rulers. I'm not saying all nuns are yeah. great. These nuns yeah. are good. You know, if you were abused by a nun, good. my bad. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the base of this organization is in Rome and their networks are active in five continents um, and they're coordinating anti-trafficking eff efforts of 50 intercongregational networks organized at the national dash local level and then 10 networks that include the joint coordination of several countries at the regional level. So that's what I mean. Like I found all these other homes and places and stories 
And so I think this is like the top organization that connects all of these nuns um, okay. all together. But I don't know. It is really cool. Um, and it is a huge problem. Obviously, human trafficking is the thir- third biggest illegal market and profits criminals up to $150 billion a year. So that's a lot. Um, the International Labor Organization estimates that roughly 25 million people are in forced labor across the globe and nearly 5 million of those facing forced sexual exploitation. Um, also included is forced begging. I learned that about that in... Um, what was that fun movie with Dev Patel that brought Slumdog, Slumdog Millionaire? Millionaire? Oh, that scene with the little boy in his eyes. Like, it really has stuck with me all these years. But like, yeah. For, do you remember this or no? I love that movie, but I don't remember that part. Maybe I blocked it out. They like make kids blind on purpose because then when they beg, they make more money because they look more sympathetic. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, when I was, you know, there's also stories about like when when they hold babies, when a lot of beggars hold babies, they're um, giving kids either heroin or something to drug them so they don't cry. So people are just holding babies that are not crying. So people will give them more money. It's horrible. I think I'd give more money to a crying baby. I think they just want you to see a beautiful sleeping baby and give money. Ugh, yeah, but that Slumdog Millionaire scene really hurts Horrible. me. So forced begging, forced marriage, and then domestic servitude. Um, and it's a difficult issue, of course, because it's so caught up with poverty. And, you know, the rich thrive off poverty. So I don't know if there'll ever be an end. But um, And that was said by Mayor Myra Cooler, a nun from Bolivia. And that's what she said about sexual exploitation. of trafficking victims are women. 90% of them are used for sexual exploitation. 25 to 30% are like young girls and boys is the next group. The majority of these victims live in Asia and the Pacific region um, at about like 3.5 million compared to in America where it's around 200,000 for the stats and, and, you know, and we talk about this now, like we talked about this in the episode about Robert Kraft and that was the Margaret Cho episode, but it's like, America right now is all gung-ho about, like, human trafficking and upping it, but it's about money to police forces and, like, really it criminalizes the sex workers, not the men that, like, use that. It's just, like, because I know people are being snatched and stuff, but it is being overblown in our culture yes. in America right now. Well, like, that, that this yeah, episode say kind it more of, clearly. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, this episode kind of proves it. They're targeting girls that are in foster homes that are— have drug problems and they're sh- they're funneling them into human trafficking scenarios. Whereas a lot of the media tries to make it seem like your teenage daughter could be walking down the street and shoved into a van and sold into slavery, like taken. And that's just not necessarily the way it is. They're targeting specifically poor groups. They're targeting specifically. And, and a lot of times it's people are being, like we talked to Dr. Heather Berg, they're being uh, sent into a trafficking rings by people they know to make money. And I mean, I don't know for what it's worth from what I, some of the research I heard, again, I always point people to this episode about uh, trafficking from you're wrong about, the podcast that I always talk about. But a lot of the trafficking is labor trafficking. I mean, sexual trafficking is a lot more headline grabbing, but a lot of it is like, I was just reading about like fucking kids that cross the border and are working in like cereal factories for no money now because they, they, there's nothing else they can do in our country. You know what I mean? Like, There's just a lot of forced labor that is also under the trafficking umbrella. Yeah. And studies, according to NBC News, suggest that over 60% of those who are trafficked for sex were runaway children. And they're often lured into that life within 72 hours of leaving home. 
And that's when they're like vulnerable. They're fresh on the street. Oh God, this is so sad. Um, there's one story I found of a 15-year-old runaway from Michigan in the 1970s. And that's what I mean. Like this organization, you know, didn't become official till 09, but these nuns have been out there. So this story just grabbed me. So in the 1970s, this woman named Leslie King um, met an older man after she ran away who promised to take care of her, who ended up being a pimp and told her, if you try to run or tell the police, I'll kill your mother, son, sister, and brother, and I'll cut up your body parts and spread them across the state of Michigan. If you're 15, you believe that person. You know what I mean? So she got to work in Grand Rapids, Michigan until a woman named Sister Francette started showing up with her Catholic sisters to talk and pray. But Leslie would never talk. But one day she ended up going to rehab, emptying her purse and the sister's card fell out. So after she left rehab, she went to live at a place called Rosehaven, which was run by the nuns who worked with the sister um, Francette. And so, you know, this has been a tradition it seems like. Um, but like I said, this group, Talitha Coombe, formally was established in 2009. And it promotes collaboration, like I said, among the networks organized at national, regional, and continental levels. Even if each network remains unique and operates within its own country or region of this International Union of Superiors General, UISG. Um, and the, so the nuns often dress up as sex workers, head into the streets to integrate themselves into the brothels. Um, the group is made up of roughly 60,000 religious sisters. Um, they work on I would their, love to see this shopping trip, by the way. I would love to see just like a bunch of nuns like at Forever 21, like trying on outfits to try to fit into brothels. Yeah. I love it. They work on their own, even though they have the support of Pope Francis, who has said that, I don't care about the Pope, but I guess it's like cool that the Pope's into it, um, who says that problems are the best resolved by going out into the streets while he sits in a fancy hat at the Vatican. But yes. Um, my, they, my husband has a joke that's like, yeah, the Pope is like the most progressive guy. This Pope is like the most progressive guy who lives in a castle and thinks that wizards are real. You know, like, I guess he's progressive for someone that believes in magic. <laughs> um, so they're super, they're a super low-key group. They don't trust local police, obviously. They do not trust government, obviously. No corporations and they don't trust the male clergy. They Hell work yeah. alone. Love it. Nobody knows they are there. And even when they did know, like the pimps did know, they left the nuns alone because they knew that there's nothing that they could say or do that would have the nuns run away. Like the nuns had the spirit of the Lord. They're not leaving. So they also try to save children who are being sold into slavery by their parents um, and set up homes in many countries to house these children. There's homes um, in Africa, Philippines, Brazil, India, so on, all over the world. Um, And you can't generalize about trafficking and slavery because no two countries are the same. It's like very specific per place you go. And not only do they work in the streets, they also do push for systemic change, lobbying, and stronger laws to help combat human trafficking. They also work to restore back dignity to these trafficked people by offering therapeutic, medical, emotional, and financial support. There is a day of prayer and awareness every year. It's February 8th. So next year, if you want to pray and be aware, that's the day. They also uh, run prevention programs in schools and offer education and training to young people to keep them out of hands of traffickers. So these nuns are busy, they're out there, and we're thankful for their work. I love hearing about this. I love hearing about where, like, the sort of Sister Nina idea came from because, yeah, I've, I've never thought of nuns, like, dressing up and going in to infiltrate these kind of rings and stuff. It's kind of it's yeah. a wild story. 
And of course, we'll see you next week for a part two of this episode. So you'll you'll know more about more more, crime. Yes, has even more uh, salacious crimes to to speak of. More guests, uh, great guests. We have a great guest today. Um, Pumped. Pumped. Our guest today is a classic double threat, an actor and a sound effects editor and sound designer. She's best known for her recurring role as Gina Murphy on Orange is the New Black, and she's been featured on shows like What We Do in the Shadows and Chicago Med, but she's also worked professionally in post-production sound on features and TV for almost 20 years. She most recently worked as a sound effect editor on A24's X and as the supervising sound editor on the upcoming Apple Plus show, Monster Factory. But you know her today as the wily and dedicated sister, Nina Kelly. Guys, please enjoy our chat with the very talented Abigail Savage. We're so excited that you're here. Yes. SVU royalty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I hear you guys are collecting us like Pokemon. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. We're trying to catch them all. (laughs) All the orange babies. We can't wait. (laughs) Oh, I just thought it was funny because our sound, our producer, Casey, goes, oh, you seem like you have a great setup. And your face was kind of like, yeah, because you are a sound engineer <laughs> and a sound designer on the side. So I yep. feel like not on the side, but like divided, I guess. I wanted to ask you that first, like when we first, with the first episode we covered that you were in was actually Sugar, the one where you play the like the hacker named the masturbator. Yeah. Totes. And I remember being like, oh, her IMDb has 106 sound credits. I wonder if she pivoted to acting, but then when I did some more research about you, it sounded like it was just like a thing you did at the same time as acting. So yeah. I just wanted to hear a little bit more about you that. You want the lowdown on that? Yeah. I, I always wanted to be an actor, mm-hmm. you know, straight through college. And I got out of college and I thought to myself, well, this is not leading lady material. <laughs> let's be honest. Regardless of my talent, I'm just not going to get cast like all that often. So I thought to myself, do I want to be like waiting tables as I struggle to be an actor my whole life? Or do I want to be in the industry in the meantime? And crazily enough, I'm in a house right after college with like five other roommates in Williamsburg. And uh, one of my roommates is complaining that she has too many internships, poor her. And one of the internships is doing post-production sound for film. And I was like, dude, I'll take your internship for you. So I just sort of like showed up. I just sort of got an internship without trying. And (laughs) I literally work at that facility to this day, like 20 years later. Oh my gosh. That's how I, I, I wanted some kind of career in film while I pursued acting. And I like, it just like fell into my lap. So that's amazing. Were you always like gifted with sound? I, uh, I, I, you know, I dabbled with the music thing. I taught myself how to play guitar so I could sing sad lesbian folk songs to myself. <laughs> yes, my like genre, so many baby. Do. That's yeah. my genre. Um, <laughs> and uh, in college, uh, all the theater majors for our final production, we all had to do an aspect of the show aside from acting. And I was handed the sound and I learned, it was like right around the time when sound was going super digital on computers And I learned that you could like edit songs in all these different ways that they weren't intended to be. And that you could see sound waves on a screen and cut and paste. And it was like, it just blew my mind. So I was already kind of interested in it uh, by the time I left college. So there you go. 
Definitely better than waiting tables for yeah. babysitting. <laughs> yeah, walking. it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. What are your pet peeves in sound um, in terms of on set and then while you're watching something, noticing things that bother you? Noisy props drive me crazy on set. Uh, like a famous example was on Orange. Uh, in the kitchen scenes, we all had these gloves on, these like super plastic, thin, like garbage bag, like thickness, plastic gloves. And it's like the whole scene. All I could hear as an actor is the shh, shh, shh. And I was like, yeah. oh my God, the sound people must be going crazy with that because <laughs> like, that's an impossible thing. Nobody wants that sound in the final, you know, product of their shows or whatever. So yeah. often on set, I, I'll sort of no notice the noisy props and you know, go through a whole internal monologue about it in my head about like, what, what should we do? How should we work around it? Et cetera, et cetera. So. Well, let's get into how much noise that crucifix made before you shoved it into your bag. Um, <laughs> Sister Nina, this character we love, like, you know, there was this character up until season 12 named Sister Peg, who was like another nun played by um, Charlene Woodward. And she like, she really resonates with people. And I felt like you, when you came, I was like, oh, there's like a new Sister the Peg new on the scene. <laughs> there's a new nun, like who puts everything aside to help people and doesn't, you know. And then unfortunately, so dramatic. You didn't make it. You didn't yeah. make it. No. But what an episode. Tell us like, Tell us the SVU situation because you had done two SVUs already. Yep. Um, you were one of the tunnel people in the episode Control, which is oh, another episode that good. we've done. Yes. Yep, yep. And then then you were in this, this big two-parter in season 17. So at this point, did they just bring you in for this one? I mean, I auditioned, but oh, okay. they really, I mean, it seemed like they were very excited about me. It, you know, they sought me out. I don't know if my agent manager sent sent the stuff. I think they sought me out for it. Mm. Um, and I, I was kind of surprised and I was kind of worried about getting it too, because it seemed like there was so much, you know, it was, the, it was going to the dark side. Like it was going to be a difficult role to play. And uh, I was like... Oh, this is going to take a lot of energy. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah. So yeah. So third time's the charm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And it was a blast. Because, you know, the, the set is this beautifully well-oiled machine. And it's just like, uh, so they, they just know what they're doing in this way that is, is not necessarily the case in, in all shows and on film and stuff like that. So it's always like a really wonderful experience to shoot with them. And did you feel that way? Like, because you're a person that did like season five and then season like, I don't even know what sugar was, like eight or, or something. And then right. 17, like, have, did you feel changes in the set, like from the different times that you went? I, it was already so smoothly run by season five. Like, mm. I was only there for a half day. But if you think about it, I mean, there was already the regular law and order. So they just inherited all yeah. that knowledge on how to do things quickly and well. Um, and uh, so it was just like, it's actually quite intimidating at first because you're dropping and everybody knows each other. Everybody knows what they're doing. And you're just this new person on set. But it was funny because Mariska, who... I had scenes with in both of the previous episodes and like conversations with, but she still had no, no idea who I was come, come this third round. And then I think, I think maybe she'd recognize me now if she saw me based on this, the sister Kelly, Nina Kelly 
episode. Yeah. But, yeah, but it was funny. Was it hard not to be like, Marishka, we know each other? <laughs> yeah, but then you think, oh my God, like the number of actors that she has had to interact with over, I know. what is it, like 24 seasons at this point? Yeah, it's hundreds. It's hundreds of people. <laughs> and and she's dealing with like five, at least five new actors every episode. I mean, like, forget it. I, yeah. I had I totally understood why she didn't realize she had met me before. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that's how people felt coming into Orange as well, because you guys it seemed like had deep connections with each other. And yeah, I mean that's the thing. Orange was I was there. I think my first day of shooting was the second day of shooting overall. So we were all and and of course nothing had come out on Netflix yet, except for a House of Cards, but that was like slightly different situation. But like, we were, it was all just like a bunch of people being kind of excited and curious about like what this thing was we were creating, you know? Um, and then of course, once we got going and realized that it was a hit and everything, I think we were pretty, we were pretty inclusive to, to, to noobs, you know? Yeah. There were, there were, there weren't that many, you know. There, there were there were only a couple of new actors a season, really. When you come oh, right yeah, down to it, yeah, that's true. We're both yeah. like huge Orange fans. I know we we want to. I think we have Orange stuff that we want to talk about in a sec. But I just want to ask more a few more SVU things. Oh please. Um. So, yeah. So getting into this role, were you just like? I mean, this is a wild character because she's this like, she has this like pure religious heart. She wants to help people, but then everyone's gaslighting her like she's crazy. She knows that she's part of this big conspiracy, but kind of no one believes her. So like, how did you, I don't know, prep? Like, how did you get into it? Um, You know, I think it's mostly just something that fits in my personality. The sort of (laughs) (laughs) anxiety, paranoia thing. It's just like... uh, I think she has this line like, I'm not crazy at some point. I literally said that on an episode of Chicago Med last year. Like, (laughs) I'm just cast as these like really neurotic, terrified human beings. So like- But they're never crazy. They're not really crazy. No, we just just have this vein of of tight anxiety that runs through us that people don't (laughs) understand. Yes, it's it's- it's my Jewish uh, neuroses just bubbling up. Uh, but so like, so so that, those parts, I, I think were just instant connection for me. Uh, and then I just had to pretend to be Catholic instead of Jewish and let yeah. it go. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of guilt, I think, on both yeah. sides. Yep. Um, <laughs> totes. How was it working with the baby, baby Noah? Oh yeah, the baby who was actually kind of big. I think yeah. it was like- <laughs> Because I'm I'm a teeny weeny human being. I am five feet tall, and I will always be five feet tall, no matter how much I shrink as I age. I will be five <laughs> feet tall, and like barely. I'm not even a hundred pounds. I'm tiny, right? And I and I had I had a newborn or one year old at that point. I can't remember how old she was, but still a very liftable child for me. And then I get on set, and they want me to pick this kid up, and the kid's like. I mean, the kid's the kid's three or something, like a normally small kid. But for me, I was like, I've never lifted a child this big before. This this is like, I don't even know how to do it. And I kept sort of lifting him up by the crotch because that's what you do with babies. But like, it was it was super awkward. But I just kept thinking, don't don't drop the child. Just don't drop the child. Throughout all the scenes where I'm holding him, it's like my all I'm thinking about. Like I'm 
barely getting my lines out. Just don't trap the child. <laughs> yeah. But the other um, scene I think about is, you know, the car chase and the murder, obviously, the woods. Can you tell us about shooting that scene? Well, the car chase is a funny one. Okay, because, great. Um, I, being a New Yorker, I, I do have my driver's license. And I did drive while I was in college because it was outside of New York. But then, you know, the day I graduated, I came back to New York and didn't drive again. And uh, like five years later, I was like, oh, I was I went to L.A. My friend was going to lend me her stick shift. I was like, no problem. I drove a stick shift in college. All of this is good. And I'm on like some L.A. highway, like jerking and like <laughs> completely like it was not like riding a bicycle. I, I was like, this feels very unsafe. I don't think I'm going to do this anymore. And I pulled off to the side of the road and she had to like come rescue me. Um, point being, that was sort of the last time I had driven before this episode. And like, so I get on set and I'm like, so there's driving. I do have my driver's license. I'm not sure if I should have my driver's <laughs> license. Uh, and they were very cool about it. And um, they got the... Um, uh, not the props person, the stunt person. They got the stunt person to sit in the car with me and get me like back up to snuff <laughs> so that I could conceivably drive a car with a bunch of people in it down a, ri- a windy road. And, and it's also a giant act. truck. It's a yeah, giant it was, van. It's it was not a, a chill car. It was yeah. a minivan. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, so I, I have a feeling everybody in that car with me was a, a little nervous while I was doing all but the But that driving. adds to the performance, I feel like, because you got, right. you're being tailed. You're very nervous. You're very stressed. I bet it was like a little bit of that and a little yep. bit, a little bit of acting and a little bit of real. Right. And if there's a jerky <laughs> camera, that's probably the tension of the cameraman yeah. knowing that <laughs> the person behind the wheel hasn't been behind the wheel in 10 years, but we all survived. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and then the death, right. That was fun. I haven't, I haven't, I wanted my eyes to be open. I requested that my eyes be open because I thought that's sort of probably more likely how people die, right? Like when they're, when they die violently, their eyes stay open. Um, So for me, that was just a little like, like how still can I be, you know, it it was, it was cool just looking up at the sky, being a corpse for a little while. and then it was my last day on set for that episode. I was, I was such a like uh, not a much less important character for that episode because I'm like out. That it it was this completely uneventful moment. Like I was used to. Oh, all right, that's a wrap on Abby. Yay! And, like everybody <laughs> stopping and clapping, and then you say thanks, thanks, and go away. But this was just like okay, moving on. And I was like, oh, I okay. I guess, I guess bye, guys. that's. I'll talk to you three, later. <laughs> three weeks of work. That's over now. Okay. <laughs> it was it was funny after the like center of attention from Manhattan transfer to be like, you know, this like, okay, she's wrapped, get her out of here (laughs) for the next episode. Yeah, it was fun. Wow. Was, speaking of the masturbator, um, she had some like fun highlights. Did you come in with those highlights or did they give you those highlights? They they totally gave them to me. Yeah, it was really funny. They they did, they they gave me tons of eye makeup too. And all I, I was like, you know, I don't really, wear a lot of makeup. So it was really funny to see right. them be like, no, this girl's going to be all like gothy kind of punky kind of wee. Uh, way better than the horrific wig I had to wear at the beginning of Manhattan Transfer. I'll tell you that much. Oh yes. That long, like um, yes, sexy it, gal wig. 
if if yeah, but it was like it had never been brushed. It was all matted. <laughs> it was more like a bunch of dead cats on my head than anything else. And even even the hair department was like, girl, we cannot do anything with this. It's just gonna sit there <laughs> and then it's gonna be off. And that's it. I think it was like the a prop from the props department, not like something from the hair and wow. makeup. Um, so it's just like, oh, okay. Well, I wonder if it was on purpose. Like maybe the nun didn't know about good wigs. Right. But hadn't she been undercover for like a really long time? (laughs) You think, you think that like she would have some cool, like Bob, like, you know, what Uma Thurman has in in Pulp Fiction or something like that. Yeah, I was going to say like a V for Vendetta, Natalie Portman style, like, yeah, undercover Bob. Yeah, instead of this, like... I do have another hair and makeup question, but this mm-hmm. is for your tunnel character, Dot, from Control. Um, what was the soot? What like, was the was, soot? I think had, like, it was all like eyeshadow. Eyeshadow, yep. okay. Okay, but you know what's what's super funny about that one? Again, this is the insider. Uh, I had just whitened my teeth, like, <laughs> three weeks previous or something, like, before the... Before the ep- uh, the character was even, you know, before the audition. And so I I get to set and they put all this crap all over me, but they never like did anything to my teeth. So like, if you watch that scene again, like every time I open my mouth, I have these like perfectly bright white, like neon teeth sticking out of this like dirty, grubby face. <laughs> uh, and I was hey, like, maybe oh, yeah, Dot had a, spot. <laughs> maybe Dot was dedicated to dental hygiene and nothing else. Who yeah, knows? Yeah, there we go. There we go. <laughs> I guess she wasn't a meth head. Yeah, she was figuring out a way to brush down in the tunnels. Yeah, right. Where yeah. did you shoot the tunnels too? Because those looked scary and dark. Was it just in the it subway? Was, it was an abandoned subway track. A legit, wow. I think it was an L train, abandoned L train subway track somewhere. Um, Ooh, yeah, it was crazy. cool. That's I, cool. I, that's like one of my favorite parts of shooting is when you're on location in really weird places. Like, so that was super cool. And then, you know, a lot of the shooting of Orange took place in an abandoned children's mental institution. Yeah. So there, there were ghosts? ghosts. Oh, there were I ghosts. Mean, okay. Yeah, I think so. But I mean... In a more tangible way, too, because, like, when we first got on set, like, they hadn't completely cleared the place out, like, when it stopped. So you'd go into this room, and there were, like, still stickers on the walls, and there was, like, a sleeping bag in the corner. Oh, and, my like, God. And then there was this— Spooky. We, yeah, we were held uh, for, like, a scene that was going to be in the yards, and, like, we were in some shack, and it was where, like, all the files were. For like the case files for the kids or something. It was just boxes and boxes of these kids' case files just gathering dust. And I was just like, I could have easily, like, it, it's I could have wandered off <laughs> and just explored the whole, the whole location. So I see you worked on the sound for something called Monster Factory. Can yes, you tell us Monster about that? Factory. That's right. It was just fascinating. It's um it's this guy who trains people to become pro wrestlers. Hell yeah. So he gives them, like, he gives them, yes, all the moves and all the physical stuff, like how to do all of the, you know, physical stuff, but also like how to create a character, how to have a personal narrative that drives, you know, people to want to root for you or against you. Like he's, it's, it's like in his head is some giant encyclopedia of like the history of pro wrestling and like how to create the the magic. And I don't, watch pro wrestling. I, I never have, but like 
you root for all of these kids. Like, they're just like one wonderful person after another trying to like pursue their dreams of being a pro wrestler. It's just, it's a really freaking good show. But you got to get Apple Plus to- And it's yeah, reality. I got to get it. Is it yeah. a real guy? It's a real guy in New Jersey. Oh, it's a reality show. It's Yeah, yeah. It's a docu-series. Oh, wow. Docu-series. Yep. That sounds much more serious. Sorry. We don't mean reality show like the stuff, <laughs> the stuff we watch. We mean, <laughs> yeah, more serious. Is there a difference in doing sound for like a non-scripted and scripted or like, I, did you do animated too? Or no? Yeah, like, I've done I saw some animated. IMDb. What's, how, what's, how are they all different? Well, uh, documentary is the most straightforward because you just want to sort of fill in the fill, fill in the the world a little bit and get everything covered. But, you know, that's a lot of talking heads. And like, after you've put in a room tone, like what else is there? I don't do uh, dialogue editing, which is like the sound that's been recorded on set. Somebody goes in and they clean it up and make it sound really good. I do adding all the extra stuff. Wow. So um, I always use You're the who the room tone is for. Yeah, 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 exactly. Wow. Yeah, and so I do foley and effects and backgrounds, basically. So with the documentary, it's very straightforward, pretty easy Wait, work. Wait, you do foley? Well, I don't, I edit the foley. And wow. now a lot of the foley that I do, I generate off of my keyboard. Like we have this library, like I make all of my footsteps by doing this on my keyboard. Tick, 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 yeah. tick, tick, tick. And it generates sounds of somebody actually walking, but then it's like in sync to the person on screen and it's like, boom, it's done. Wow. See, this is why I think sound editing is so cool. Like I do crazy stuff with my keyboard. Like ugh, I can transform my voice into like a howling dog if I need a howling dog or whatever. <sighs> I, I've Anyway, I, I, I won't get into it because not everyone is that interested. I follow Foley artists on Instagram. Oh Yeah. Well, yeah, see. I watch them like do, make this. I like that. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, we used to record Foley. We had a Foley pit and everything, but then we've accumulated all these sounds over the years. Yeah. So I can just get them from my sound library. And then the question was like, well, how do I get it to like fall in sync into picture in a timely manner if it's like just in a sound library. And so like we trigger the sounds and it's the same thing that people do, uh, you know, in the back, uh, in the back room during a play, right. You trigger all these sound effects as mm -hmm. they go in real time. Yeah. So uh, now that's how I do like 70% of my Foley for everything. And anyway, feature films are a little more creative and full, right. And extensive. Um, and then animated film, you have to sort of do everything. So right. animated is definitely the hardest is the an final answer to that. So question. animation's the hardest yeah. feature film is the most creative and then yes. doc is just quite straightforward. straightforward. Yeah. So besides monster factory, besides monster factory coming out, um, do you have any other like projects in the works? Anything else you want to, our, our listeners should look out for? Um, I just started working, you know, mostly I do the sound editing and then every now and then I'm lucky and I do the acting. So <laughs> the last acting gig I did was Chicago Med a year ago. So if they want to see me be hysterical and insist that yes. I'm not crazy uh, in another show, you another can Another Dick Wolf. Out. Yeah. That's right. Another Dick Wolf. But uh, you're in the Dick Wolf universe. That's, that's always right. great. They'll bring you back to all the different shows, I'm sure. That's Law right. and Order Regular is back. I mean, there's plenty of places. Yeah. I've never done a regular Law and Order, so bring it on, man. Yeah. Um, and then in Soundwise, I just started work on a Disney series that I probably am not allowed to like be yeah. too specific about. 
but I can, I guess I can say it's about a kid's choir. It's another docu-series. And it's oh. like, just like, oh my God, I love these kids. And it's, it's very, uh, you're again, like this just group of people you're totally rooting for. Oh, I uh, love and that. So that's a lovely thing to, yeah, look out for eventually. Well, guys, thank, thank you, you for so having yeah, thank me. Thank you. Oh my gosh, she's great. I love um, somebody that has two full careers. It's amazing. Good work. Yeah, and it's just cool to be, uh, to hear someone that the room tone is for them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I I don't even understand what that is, like really. I mean, I know like, okay, we're being quiet for room tone, but I don't really get what they do with it. Well, she was explaining, like, um, when they're, like, when you need it to just be quiet, but you're filming, like... You're entering the room before dialogue or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got to do room tone. Yeah. And the the smashing. I don't know. I love Foley artists so much. But I was, you know, I told you about Quentin Tarantino had this um, editor who passed away, Sally. And so I saw that during editing, like, there was a whole montage of all the actors from all his movies, like, during work being like, hey, Sally, what's up, Sally? And I just hung out with someone that edits movies and, like, um, they worked for Happy Madison. And they said, like, people would do that for them. Like, they Aww. would be like, hi, what? Because they know who would, who was editing the movies. Editing. And That's so cute. she said that she keeps them, um, like, people saying hi to them. And so now I want to do that. That's like a little reel of it. That's cute. Yeah. So yeah. now I like, it's cool. Like I want to think about who's editing and make little cute moments. Cause I do yeah, remember. Those people are sitting alone in a dark avid for like hours and days and months. And you're like, hi, it's me. Just wanted to say hi. Cause I oh, do nice. remember Michelle at one point being like, I like this take like into her mic or like I pick this yeah. one, but I like the idea of cute little messages. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So cute. And and Abigail forever, we will be calling all of our Oranges the New Black People Pokemon. We will catch <laughs> them all. And I'm obsessed with that. I'm running yeah. with it. I'm picking it We're up and it. I'm running. Yes, totally. So what do we learn from this episode? I would say that uh, people at the highest levels of power, judges, politicians are all doing fucked up shit, basically. They're all at parties where a nun is bartending in a bad wig. I don't know. It's so scary. Well, the nuns are good. Like, they do good. They're on the boots on the ground. The nuns are boots on the ground. And then all these fucking losers. I mean, I always say this. I think people that are so into getting power and money or pedophiles or abusers or rapists or Yeah, because whatever. it's not like nuns have like a hierarchy in the same way. Like, I mean, I probably don't know because I don't, like I know that there's like a mother superior or whatever from Sound of Music is my literal reference point. But like, I know that there's probably a head nun or whatever, but it's not like they're trying to move their way up from like a bishop to cardinal to fucking pope or whatever, you know? Like there's not like a power struggle. Nuns are truly just like, we want to help people. Unless if you know something, something different, please let me know. If I, if it turns out nuns have like turned the other cheek about molestation and stuff or have been part of it, please let us know. But as far as I know, like it, it feels like it's definitely I've more of a- nuns like hit you with, with the ruler. Yes. But that abuse. was like, that was the way. My mom went to Catholic school and it was whoosh on the desk. Okay, well, let's, well, this is obviously an amazing- We've learned more. We've learned more. Well, this is an amazing two-parter. I feel like there's more at the end of the next episode. You know what I mean? Yeah, and we talked up top a lot about Law Roach for a wildly. So maybe we just moving along. 
<laughs> we learned nothing. No, it's a two-part episode. Obviously, come back next week because we will continue. We're going to get the second half. And we have an awesome yeah. guest next week, too. Um, and then let's get and into this week's- And a sadder crime. Like, this is superhero nuns. And then next week is- Not great. Dead nuns. <laughs> dead nuns. So, sad. But- for this week's What Would Sister Peg Do, uh, which is our weekly segment where we point you guys to a organization, blog, podcast, something, uh, Instagram account, something that helps flesh out a little bit more about what we talked about today. We wanted to just point you to um, the organization that Lisa talked directly about in the episode, Talitha Coom. Uh, like she mentioned, Talitha Coom is an umbrella network of sister-led networks. Uh, striving to end human trafficking. And they are active on five continents and coordinate the anti-trafficking efforts of 50 intercongregational networks. And for more information, you can go to talithacoom.info. And that's T-A-L-I-T-H-A-K-U-M dot info. Um, and I love that they have a little website. Um, I wonder which nun is like the the nerdy tech nun. Anyway, that's that. They're like Pokemon too. Okay. Um, <laughs> next week's episode, like we've been hinting at, is Unholiest Alliance, which is season 17, episode 18. Just the next one. And I'm sure some of you just watch watch through. both because yeah. it's hard not to. It is wild sometimes when we do research and then I'll be like, I'm just watching this one little part. And then I'm like, I'm watching it all, baby. <laughs> <laughs> next week, we'll see you then. Thank you see so you much then. for listening. Give us a rate review or whatever. Love you guys. Bye. That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmesseduppod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at thatsmesseduppod and on Twitter at messeduppod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to our producer, Casey O'Brien. And to our mixer, John Bradley, and our guest booker, Patrick Kotner. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song and Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thank you to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, Daniel Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Dun-dun! Follow That's Messed Up and SVU Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase That's Messed Up merch.